If you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read the closing verses of this first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Remember, as soon as we finish this, we're going to roll next week right into 2 Thessalonians. And so we're just kind of doing these two letters together as our sermon series for the fall, as we head into the Advent series coming up next. Uh, But we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12. And so remember, if you have no idea where 1 Thessalonians is, it's not a sin to use the table of contents. Feel free to use it. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Keep going, keep going. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Just keep going, and you'll find 1 Thessalonians. Look for the big number 5. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then look for the little number 12. That's the verse that we're going to start in. We're going to read verses 12 to 28 and finish up this first letter. And remember, the New Testament says someone's coming again. The Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts, say someone's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. Who is that someone? The promised Savior, the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is mentioned a page and a half in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. And so this morning, we are looking at the closing verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you're opening there, as you're kind of, we're kind of settling in here, can you think of a turning point in your generation? Think of a turning point that something that happened that maybe not just for you personally, but something that changed or shaped an entire community of people moving forward. Maybe the events of World War II and how that radic- everybody was just a little different after that. And maybe Woodstock. You know, this, this concert that kind of just went down, this iconic shift that happens, and you, you have people that still identify themselves as part of the Woodstock generation. It may be the civil rights movement. For my generation, it's the events of 9-11. But there's one event in particular that comes to mind when you think about 9-11 and what happened, and this turning point that kind of, we saw this shift that happened. I remembered it, and at some point you go, I think we're going to be okay. And for me, it was watching President George W. Bush throw out the first pitch of Game 3 of the World Series in October of 2001, not even just a little over two months after the towers had fallen. And I remember the president walking out to the mound, giving this confident thumbs up in Yankee Stadium in New York City, going there and all of us wondering what in the world just happened and how are we going to move forward and you see President Bush go out, stand on the mound, give the thumbs up, later find out that he was wearing a bulletproof vest underneath his jacket, heavy, but he goes out, he gives the thumbs up and then what he does is he from the mound, he doesn't bounce it, he throws a perfect strike from the mound with a bulletproof vest and the crowd just goes wild. And you think about that, and at some point, you just you see the president going out there with all of this, what's going to happen? Is, is there anybody else trying to hurt us? What's going on? He's, he's out there by himself, and he just throws the first pitch, and it's an absolute strike. And you go, maybe we're, maybe we're going to be okay. And talking about that, Todd Green, who was the backup catcher for the Yankees at the time, who actually caught it. He said, it's by far the best moment in baseball that I have been a part of because of the significance for the healing process that our country needed at the time. So I don't know what I could have done from a player's standpoint to top what our country needed at the time, which is what President Bush did. It was just a huge moment in time of healing to let the whole world know that we're, new, that we're moving forward and, we are not, and you are not going to intimidate us. 
And the reason I bring this up is because we're about to read Paul's kind of closing words, his kind of final salvo in this letter to this little church in Thessalonica that we've been talking about. And this group of people, you can remember if you go back to chapter 1, he talks about how the gospel had come with such power in this area, through this group of Christians. It had changed absolutely everything. He said, because of the gospel coming, not only are you different, but the whole region is different because people have taken notice. Remember, Thessalonica was this big port city in Macedonia. Huge port city. A lot of people coming in and out, but it also was in the shadow of Mount Olympus. A lot of pagan idolatry worship, a lot of worshiping the gods, this pantheon of gods. And all of a sudden, the gospel comes with such force that you have this group that even in the midst of persecution and suffering had held firm to the gospel promises, changed absolutely everything. It says that their faith and their hope and love had, in Paul's words, sounded forth from Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul had received this encouraging report from Timothy about this church. He was worried about them. He sent Timothy, brings the report back. Obviously, there were some final things that he needed to to teach them and instruct them in. But he also wanted to encourage them to keep going. And so, what... What were, what were Paul's kind of final words to this church in this letter? What was the thing that he wanted to leave them with? That's what we're going to read this morning. And so let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We'll read to the end of the letter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Oh, Father, we come before you and we ask and pray that you would remind us of your love and your grace. And we are thankful for Christ. And we pray, for, uh, we pray, oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Please move in our hearts. Take these words, apply them to us. Remind us of what is true and right and good. Help us to make much of Christ this morning. We pray these things humbly in His name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're reading the last few verses of 1 Thessalonians. These, and Paul uses these last few sentences in this letter to talk about really some mundane stuff. Just kind of everyday life in the local church. And then call his original audience to action. And Paul wants to leave this group of Christians with a kind of a picture of what a gospel church kind of looks like. 
And you, you want to think about these things almost like family guidelines that apply to the church at large. And so these things also apply to us, kind of this apostolic look, a peek behind the curtain of what a gospel church should look like. And remember this call to action that Paul, he, you know, he, he references these things and then calls his original audience and us to respond in some way. But remember this call to action in the closing section of the letter is grounded in Paul's statements about what is true. Remember, we've said before that the indicative drives the imperative. These statements of fact, this reminder of these things are true and unshakable because they're grounded in God alone. These statements of fact then drive the imperative, this call to action. So we've talked about we love why. We're called to love why because he first loved us. This thing is true, and so we live in light of that. The way to think about that when you think about what Paul's saying here is he's saying, look, these promises are true. Some of that stuff's what we talked about last week, this hope of the second coming of Christ and this vital doctrine of the union with Christ. He's saying all these things are still true. Now go live as if they're true. Go live that out. Go, go take that out to the world around you. In our English Bibles, your probably, your, yours does, it probably includes a section break before verse 12. Mine says, final instructions and benediction. Those were actually added later just to kind of help us find things in the Bible. But actually, in the original, this would have just flowed from verse 11 to 12. And that's where one of those things you kind of want to remove that in your mind because it makes you disconnect what he's saying from the previous section. But in many ways, it's just an extension of Paul's application of the doctrine of union with Christ that we talked about last week. And so this morning, the big question that we're going to ask and answer is the big question we're going to ask is, how does our union with Christ, which that's what's talked about in the previous section, how does our union with Christ impact the way we relate to each other in the church? So how does our union with Christ impact the way that we relate to each other in the church? We're going to see three points this morning, because the text kind of breaks out in those three ways. Usually I'm a two-point guy. This time it called for three, okay? So number one, we're going to see our union with, with Christ impacts, number one, the way we relate to leadership in the church, leaders in the church. Number two, the way we interact with others in the church. And then also, finally, thirdly, we're going to see how we interact with each other together as we worship. I'll remind you of those three points as we go if you forget, no big deal. Let's look at that first point. So our union with Christ impacts the way we relate to leaders in the church. And look at what Paul starts here in verses 12 and 13 by addressing the relationship between the congregation and those in spiritual leadership. Paul tells the brothers, a word that he uses actually three times in this section, brothers, 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 to respect and esteem very highly in love those who are, quote, over you in the Lord. Now, I can almost hear your rugged American individualism starting to kick back against these verses because there is some sort of like leadership accountability kind of structure mentioned here. I can feel your American hearts going, who are you to tell us what to do? I can feel that. But I would argue that one of the ways that you can tell that the gospel is taking root in your life is you realize that you actually need oversight and accountability. You don't trust even yourself. It's one of the ways that the gospel kind of gets into us. You have a growing awareness of your sin. You have a growing appreciation that God has actually, in his wisdom, provided necessary oversight for you. 
And here's what Andrew Young said in his uh, commentary that I thought was really helpful. He said, Paul is not advocating a servile deference towards leaders, but an attitude of deep affection and appreciation. Why? Because, you're, because church leadership is perfect all the time? No, not even close. No, it's, quote, because of their work that you see in verse 13. And there, as verse 12 tells us, are their labor among you. That word translated labor is almost an agricultural farming kind of word. As they're working alongside you and working for you and on behalf of you. And here's the thing. You probably know this, especially if you have been in church leadership before. Church leadership is hard. There's no off switch. It's a 24-7 life calling that often disrupts our families, changes our plans on a dime, and asks us to step into hard situations that often keep us up at night. And again, I can already hear the objection in your mind. Well, Dave, that's easy for you to say. You're the guy at the top of the food chain. Okay. But this is where I would like to remind you of how our Presbyterian church government actually works. And this is going to sound boring, but it's actually not. Okay? You can hear the objection. Okay, well, Paul calls us to, you know, Paul calls us to respect uh, those in leadership over us. And you're like, well, that's easy enough for you to say, Dave. Okay? Here's, here, let me remind you of how our system works. Simply put, in the PCA and kind of the Reformed Presbyterian world, we are fully convinced of the fallibility and frailty of everyone in the church, including its leaders, and so there are checks and balances up and down the line. Yes, I'm the senior pastor, which sounds really fancy, but I'm actually the only one. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm the senior pastor. I'm the only pastor. Yeah, I get that, but I do not have unchecked authority. I'm just one voice in a plurality of elders, and I submit myself to the elders of the church just like you do. Just like you do. Simply put, when we think about this, uh, you know, every ordained officer in the PCA publicly affirms and makes fourth vow. Here's what this vow says. Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? That kind of sounds like this, doesn't it? Do you promise subjection to your brethren? We take vows to submit to the government of the church, the book of church order, and our theological standards, and we are held accountable by our presbytery. Every PCA church submits itself to the regional presbytery. Ours is called Providence Presbytery, which goes from Fort Payne in the east to Tuscumbia in the west, includes Huntsville, Decatur, and the Shoals. That's kind of our little strip, and we are all held accountable. Did you know that we have to submit our minutes of all of our meetings to the presbytery once a year for review and they send us a sheet back with like hey you forgot to do this that and the other it's accountability up and down the line and this doesn't just apply every pca church submits itself to the presbytery every presbytery submits itself to the national assembly and even the national assembly can be held accountable by a local church session there are checks and balances up and down the line and this doesn't just apply to the PCA. All Christians are under the authority of sovereign King Jesus. And here's the hard truth that we all need to hear. There is no category for unchecked American individualism in the kingdom of God. We all serve and are people under authority. We are under the authority of King Jesus. We live in his kingdom. There is... It's kind of like the, the word individual Christian is kind of an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. We're all connected. We all are under authority. We submit ourselves to God and his infallible word because we live in his world. 
We are all people under authority. And as fellow believers, we're all under God-ordained authority, and we are to respect it. The Greek word here is to appreciate or take notice of those in authority over us. Hebrews 13, 17, the first half says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Oh, I feel that. We say, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, we're called to submit to authority, but then all those in authority are going to have to give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ of how we've done it. And I go, I am in big trouble, but I'm grateful for grace. And Paul is asking us all to honor the great shepherd of the sheep by honoring those who have been called as under-shepherds of his flock. And Paul is asking the leaders to remember that they will have to give an account one day. So it's not unchecked authority. It's all under the oversight of our good shepherd. But one of the big problems in the American church at large is that we treat church like a consumer product. Instead of receiving correction humbly, or answering the call to give our lives away in service to others by volunteering and helping out, people will just shop around to find a place that won't challenge them or ask anything from them or talk about anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. And then what they can do is they can just hide in the crowd and then customize their church experience to their individual preferences like it's a trip to Chipotle or Subway. Okay? That's what's going on. You say, oh, well, I don't like this one, or I I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I don't want that and I don't want that. Okay, the church is not your burrito at Chipotle. Okay? In many ways, the stereotypical church potluck that we all love, right? It's been a while since we've done a potluck. We should get one of those up again. I love a good church potluck. But the stereotypical potluck is actually a great picture of the church, right? You show up, there's some stuff you like, there's some stuff you don't like, right? But it's what's been given to us in love, and we all show up and take part in it together for our good and for the glory of Christ. We are all united to Christ, and we realize that everything we have, including the leadership over us, has been ordained by God himself, and it's all for our sanctification. Remember, chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your growth in grace, your holiness. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is one of the best instruments that God uses for your sanctification and mine, right? Because we don't always get our way, and that's a good thing. We learn how to live life in community. Let's thank God for those he has called to serve in leadership capacity and ask the Holy Spirit to guide them and keep them from the attacks of Satan and discouragement. I can assure you that every one of your officers feels ill-equipped for the task that Christ has called them to. Every one of us feels like, oh, who am I? Who am I to do this? But we also realize that we're not alone in this work, that we have the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus whom we serve, but we also do it with you which is great. That's our second point. So our union with Christ impacts not only the way that we interact with leaders in the church, but it also impacts the way that we interact with each other inside the church. Let's look at this. Verse 13, Paul calls us all to actively pursue the bond of peace within the church. And then Paul again addresses you brothers in verse 14, and he kind of zooms back out to address the believer's responsibility to each other within the church. And he says, admonish, which is instruct or warn or correct, the idle, which another way to translate that is the unruly. 
And so those who purposely are trying to disrupt the peace and drive a wedge between others in the church. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, that we'll get to many weeks from now, he actually calls these type of people busybodies. He also says, encourage the faint-hearted. Those who have spiritual needs, those who are small of soul is a way to think about that. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. These Christians, you think about what was going on at the time. These Christians had experienced suffering. They had even seen their fellow believers die. Remember, we talked about that last week. They're like, what happens to those who died and gone before us? These people had experienced unbelievable suffering, and they were discouraged, as you can imagine. They were small of soul. And this is why Paul challenged us last week to, quote, encourage each others with these words, to remind each other of the gospel and the return of Christ. Did you do that this past week? Did you encourage someone with the gospel? Go out of your way to call somebody that you might know that might be just struggling or hurting or discouraged and just remind them that the gospel's true. Remind them that they have a Savior. Remind them of the grace and mercy of the Lord. Paul calls us to encourage each other with these words. You think about how you also see here that Paul says to help the weak. So those who have physical needs, not just spiritual needs, encourage the faint-hearted, but also to help the weak, those who have physical needs, to go and to help them and to, and to, to rally around them. He says to be patient and long-suffering with them all. That's the, that's the overarching kind of umbrella that covers all this. Go be patient. Be long-suffering. Give your life away for the sake of each other in the body of the church. And you look at verse 15 and what he says here. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. If we feel slighted, which we, we all will at some point, if we feel slighted, we don't seek personal revenge. This doesn't just apply to physical harm. It also includes gossip. It includes passive-aggressive comments meant to bend someone to your will or just lying about people and bearing false witness. You know, We're called to honor the Lord and not repay evil for evil. We are called to be gracious and kind and merciful. You imagine what a body of people this size would look like if you just kind of gave each other the benefit of the doubt most of the time? You do realize that most people don't wake up with your personal demise in their minds. I don't wake up and go, how can I make life difficult for this specific person in the congregation? I got enough going on, and so do you. So we give each other the benefit of the doubt, and we work together. And we try to encourage each other and be patient and long-suffering with each other because the Lord has done that with us first. That's why we do it. And Christ calls us in the church to not use the weapons of the world. He calls us to trust the gospel and to trust the scripture in our interaction with others as the Holy Spirit does his work. Y'all, in here we shouldn't have to wear the armor around each other here. We trust Christ as a family we love and encourage each other as we worship and as we serve together. This should be a safe place for you where you can come and you don't have to feel like you need to put up a fake version of yourself. That you can come in all of your mess and all of your wreck and just all of the stuff of life. You can come here and be loved and cared for as a family. And may God help us as we pray and ask the Lord to help our church look like that and feel like that. Knowing that we need His help in this sense. Why? Because we're all sinners. And we're all selfish. And we want what we want when we want it. And we say, Lord, please, please help us. 
Give us more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Give us more of that, O Lord. Help us to love one another as we interact with each other. We are reminded that we are all united to Christ. I'm the vine, you're the branches. We're all connected to each other because of Christ. We're all united to one another because of Christ. And the church is a glorious thing, but it's also a hot mess, is it not? But yet we're all united to Christ and united to each other. And that changes the way we interact with each other. Like we're going to be in heaven with each other. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? We're all united to Christ. But finally, our union with Christ impacts the way that we interact with each other as we worship. And that's our third point. Paul then turns his attention to the church as they gather corporately. And how do we know that? Because all the verbs in these verses in the Greek are actually plural. So think y'all, y'all. Okay, so the, 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 the verbs change tense here. And if taken individually, and what I'm talking about is moving forward from verse 16. I mean, did you read that? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And you went, huh, how can anybody do that? Rejoice always? Pray all the time? Give thanks in every circumstance? You think, how could anybody possibly do that? But doesn't, don't these verses change? It gives you a little bit more perspective when you think about the plural how we do this together as a church. It says, rejoice always. Remember, these first century Christians had experienced suffering and persecution and ostracism for claiming Christ. He says, rejoice. So what was their joy anchored in? Their circumstances? No. Their joy was anchored in Christ and the hope of his return, which is what we talked about last week. He's going to come and rescue and redeem. That's what their, their joy was grounded in something beyond themselves. It was grounded in the promises of God. That's where our joy comes from. That's why we can rejoice together even when life gets hard because of the promises of God. It says to pray without ceasing. Let everything we do in worship be covered in prayer. Give thanks in all circumstances. We trust the providence of God. And we're thankful that regardless of the situation, He sits on the throne and He watches over us. It says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for y'all, plural. As we gather, as we rejoice, as we pray, as we give thanks, we do all this in the name of Christ and in the power of Christ for the glory of Christ. Our, our statement is this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. May all that we do be for your glory as we trust you. And verses 19 through 21 are a unit. And you can kind of read them like this. Do not quench the Spirit by not immediately despising prophecy, but test it and hold fast to what is good. And there's various views of prophecy in the church. And as you know, entire denominations have been formed revolving around the various views. I take the view that prophecy is for, is not foretelling, it is forthtelling. It's not foretelling, like crystal ball kind of stuff. It is forthtelling. It is telling forth the Word of God. We have no need for ongoing revelation because we have a completed Bible in our hands. And we've said before, if you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read your Bible out loud. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 is really helpful when we think about this topic. It says, and we have this prophetic word. There it is. We have the prophetic word 
more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy, there it is, no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we're called to do is not to immediately dismiss what we hear from the pulpit or, or hear exp- explained from the Word. What we're called to do is to test it. Test it from Scripture. One of the most joyous sounds in the ear of a pastor is the ruffling of Bible pages. We love to hear that crinkly noise. You know, we're called to, to test what we hear against Scripture. We're called to hold fast to Scripture and Scripture alone. I'm not asking you to, just because I say it doesn't mean it's infallible. I am not infallible, okay? I'm not. I'm not. Test what you hear against Scripture. Open Scripture. Wrestle with it. Test it. Here's what James Grant Jr. said. He said, we should take the words of counsel that friends provide and test those words through Scripture. Godly advice and counsel must be tested through God's Word. It does not matter whether we're talking about sermons or counsel about life or friends at work who say, God told me to tell you. All must be tested by God's word. Now, after hearing all of that, you might be thinking, Dave, who could possibly do all of that? Who could possibly do that? And the answer is no one under our own strength. And if you are here and you do not trust Christ by faith, you'll never be able to do this on your own strength. You'll never be able to stand up on your own moral record. You'll never be able to keep that. And that's where we say flee to Christ, rest in Christ, trust in Christ. If you're here and you claim Christ as Savior, but you still think it's up to you to somehow make yourself worthy, stop. Stop it. God's at work. Trust the Holy Spirit. Rest in Him. Your efforts are not going to work. The answer is the same. Repent. Flee to Christ. Rest in Christ. We all need a Savior. All of us. Me too. We all need a Savior. We all need Christ. And you think, oh, how could anybody do all this? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. Love each other as Christ has loved us. Who in the world could possibly do all of that? None of us can. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes and equips us and we trust Christ together. It's where the gospel comes rushing in, where we're reminded once again of our union with Christ and where the gospel comes in for those who trust Christ by grace alone through faith alone. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. He who calls you is faithful. Who's going to do it? He will. He will surely do it. All of the ground that we've covered this morning and for the past few weeks in 1 Thessalonians, it's all based upon the faithfulness of God, not your own. Isn't that good news? It's all based upon the faithfulness of God. Theologically, some would read these verses like, Go sanctify yourself and keep your whole spirit and soul and body blameless until until the coming of the Lord. So you go do it. Then report back. But this is not the gospel. And thankfully, that's not what these verses say. It doesn't say, you go figure it out. And you go make yourself perfect. No. No. It's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. We're reminded that it's God who does all of this. In us, because he's faithful. 
And we have a promise. He will surely do it. He will surely do that. How do we know that He will do it? How do we know that God will be faithful? Because Jesus came into the world to rescue and redeem us. Do you need a reminder of the faithfulness of God? Do you need a reminder of the faithfulness of God this morning? Look no further than the table set before you. Look no further than this. Look no further than this tangible sign of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ being with you. Look no further than this reminder of the greatest turning point in human history where everything changed. Absolutely everything changed. When Christ hung between heaven and earth to rescue and redeem the people that God gave him before the foundation of the world. Look no further than the point in time when your sin debt was paid for by Christ and his final words were pronounced over you. It is finished. It's finished. It's done. It's been paid for. Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. It's a good reminder of the love and the grace and the faithfulness of our Lord that he makes covenant promises and he always keeps them. And we think about he who began a good work in you will carry that work until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. And he's molding you and shaping you and sanctifying you and making you more like Christ. And the good news of the gospel is even in the midst of our struggles, here's the good news. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Do you believe that this morning? That even in the midst of your sin and your struggle and your restlessness, God is faithful. He will surely do it. He will always back his word up. I am thankful for that. I hope you are too. That he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we are thankful that you are the same yesterday, today, forever. We come before you and we trust you. Or we think about your grace and we think about your mercy, we think about your kindness, we ask the question, Lord, why me? Why me? We are thankful for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our midst as a church. Help us to be faithful. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances and to, and to rest in you and to help us to, Lord, encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. Lord, give us all that we need as we seek to be faithful to you. And we are thankful for your mercy. We are thankful for Christ. We are thankful for the cross. And as we sing in just a moment, as we prepare our hearts to take the supper together, O Lord, remind us of your mercy. Help us to see our sin. Lord, help us to see how that sin was dealt with through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. So quiet our hearts now. And Lord, even as we sing, help us to behold this wondrous mystery. Your gospel, it's true, and it will never change. We're grateful for that. We pray these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen.